Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the Hemingway List Podcast, Book 10, Chapter 14. Let's just muse on the hilarity of the rebels' easy fall to Rostov. What was the purpose of their stand, and why would they give in so easily? I think they took their stand. They were egged on by the French propaganda, um, for one thing, and also I think they just knew there was a lack of leadership with old man Rostov having died. Um, there was sort of no, uh, I don't know, what's the word? <laughs> I don't know what's the word. <laughs> enforcer. Let's just say there was no enforcer. I'm trying to think of like a prison, a warden. That's the word I was trying to find. There's no warden. Is that the word? Who cares? Anyway, we learn that Maya and Rostov know who the other is, and Maya at least doesn't think it's an issue that Natasha and Andre were engaged. It also becomes clear that Rostov has thought of marrying Maya. However, he definitely mentions her money as a draw. Is that what's driving his feelings? How does this chapter add or take away from the feelings you have about their potential relationship? I never thought I'd learn to be so good at quickly understanding Russian names before reading War and Peace. I'd have looked at Alpatish and Bogacharovo and been like WTF now, no problem. What new insight or skill or revelation or whatever has reading this book brought to you? Of course, these discussion prompts have recycled from last year. And they're very good ones too. Um, You know, it doesn't change my opinion of Rostov that he's acknowledging her wealth and the fact that it will help his family. It was just the way of the aristocratic lifestyle that that was a consideration. So I don't think it's uh, it's frowned upon that he's thinking of it in that way. Waiting for Leah says, this makes me sad for Sonia. Yeah, poor old Sonia is getting left behind in this. I think uh, that's kind of what the parents had been getting at from the start, that it's silly for him to be in love with his cousin who's a bad suitor, um, a bad match for him. So it was never really a good option. And uh, as he grows up, that's going to become more and more apparent. Twisted every way says, man, the 1800s were wild. You meet someone for the first time for one day and suddenly you're in love and are dreaming of marriage for both parties. My edition has a note that Mary thought it was providence because of the Orthodox Church wouldn't have let her marry her brother's brother-in-law, which is what Nikolai would have been if Natasha had married Andrew. Ah, interesting. That's a weird law to have. You can't marry your brother's brother-in-law. Definitely don't like where this is going. I said it yesterday, I'll say it again. Poor Sonia. Yeah. Um, Four Lost Souls in a Bowl says my question as it is Nikolai's is also what of Sonia but unlike Rostov I'm not just thinking of the promise he made I'm thinking of the feelings he professed I absolutely understand that marrying Maya would basically save the family but how does he feel about marrying Sonia does he still love her but feel this would be best anyway does he no longer love her does he love her when he's around her and think of her as an obligation when he's not because that's how it felt to me throughout this novel yay I think he's made some promises very young and 
without his world experience. You know, he made all those promises while he was still just essentially a kid at home. Then he's gone off to fight in wars and do all these other things. And he wants to be honorable. You know, he wants to be a man of his word. But how realistic is it? Um, I mean, think about the crush you had in high school or the first love that you had and then how silly it would be for years later to be loyal to that crush, you know. I know some people do marry their high school sweethearts and that's great, but um, you definitely wise up a bit as you go out into the real world and you figure out that maybe that first person who you felt in, fell in love with um, wasn't the best person for you. Chapter 15 goes like this. On receiving command of the armies, Kutuzov remembered Prince Andrei and and sent an order for him to report at headquarters. Prince Andrei arrived at Sarivo Zaymishch on the very day, at the very hour that Kutuzov was reviewing the troops for the first time, he stopped in the village at the priest's house in front of which stood the commander-in-chief's carriage and he sat down on the bench at the gate awaiting his serene highness, as everyone now called Kutuzov. From the field beyond the village came now sounds of regimental music and now the roar of many voices shouting hurrah to the new commander-in-chief. Two orderlies, a courier and a major domo, stood nearby some ten paces from Prince Andre, availing themselves of Kutuzov's absence and of the fine weather. A short, swarthy lieutenant colonel of hussars with thick moustaches and whiskers rode up to the gate and, glancing at Prince Andre, inquired whether His Serene Highness was putting up there and whether he would soon be back. Prince Andre replied that he was not on His Serene Highness's staff but was himself a new arrival, the lieutenant colonel turned to a smart orderly who, with the peculiar contempt with which a commander-in-chief's orderly speaks to officers, replied, What, his serene highness, I expect he'll be here soon. What do you want? The lieutenant colonel of Hussars smiled beneath his moustache at the orderly's tone, dismounted, gave his horse to the dispatch runner, and approached Bolkonsky with a slight bow. Bolkonsky made room for him on the bench, and the lieutenant colonel sat down beside him. You're also waiting for the commander-in-chief, said he. They say he receives everyone, thank God. It's awful with those sausage-eaters. Ermolov had reason to ask to be promoted to be a German. Now perhaps Russians will get a look in. As it was, devil only knows what was happening. We kept retweeting and retweeting. Did you take part in the campaign? he asked. I had the pleasure, replied Prince Andrei, not only of taking part in the retreat, but of losing in that retreat all I held dear, not to mention the estate and home of my birth, my father who died of grief. I belong to the province of Smolensk. Ah, you're Prince Bolkonsky. Very glad to make your acquaintance. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Denisov, better known as Vaska, said Denisov, pressing Prince Andrei's hand and looking into his face with a particularly kindly attention. Yes, I heard said he sympathetically, and after a short pause added, Yes, it's Scythian warfare. It's all very well, only not for those who get it in the neck. So, you are Prince Andrei Bolkonsky, he swayed his head. Very pleased, Prince, to make your acquaintance, he repeated again, smiling sadly, and he began, and he again pressed 
Prince Andre's hand. Prince Andre knew Denisov from what Natasha had told him of her first suitor. The memory carried him sadly and sweetly back to those painful feelings from which he had not thought lately, but which found place in his soul. Of late he had received so many new and very serious impressions, such as the retreat from Smolensk, his visit to Bald Hills, and the recent news of his father's death, and had experienced so many emotions that for a long time past those memories had not entered his mind, and now that they did, they did not act on him with nearly their former strength. For Denisov too, the memories awakened by the name of Bolkonsky belonged to a distant romantic past, when after supper and after Natasha's singing, he had proposed to a little girl of fifteen without realising what he was doing. He smiled at the recollection of that time and of his love for Natasha and passed at once to what now interested him passionately and exclusively. This was a plan of campaign he had devised while serving at the outposts during the retreat. He had proposed that plan to Barclay de Tolly and now wished to propose it to Kutuzov. The plan was based on the fact that the French line of operation was too extended and it proposed that instead of or concurrently with action on the front to bar the advance of the French, we should attack their line of communication. He began explaining his plan to Prince Andre. They can't hold that all online. It's impossible. I'll undertake to break through. Give me 500 men and I will break the line. That's certain. There's only one way. Guerrilla warfare. Denisov rose and began gesticulating as he explained his plan to Bolkonsky. In the midst of his explanations, shouts were heard from the army, growing more incoherent and more diffused, mingling with music and songs and coming from the field where the review was held. Sounds of hoofs and shouts were nearing the village. He's coming, he's coming, shouted a Cossack standing at the gate. Bolkonsky and Denisov moved to the gate at which the knots of soldiers, a guard of honour, was standing and they saw Kutuzov coming down the street mounted on a rather small sorrel horse. A huge suit of generals rode behind him. Barclay was riding almost behind, beside him, and a crowd of officers ran after and around them, shouting hurrah. His adjutants galloped into the yard before him. Kutuzov was impatiently urging on his horse, which ambled smoothly under his weight, and he raised his hand to his white horse's guard's cap with a red band and no peak, nodding his head continually. When he came up to the guard of honour, a fine set of grenadiers, mostly wearing decorations, who were giving him a salute. He looked at them silently and attentively for a minute <clears throat> with the steady gaze of a commander and then turned <clears throat> to the crowd of generals and officers surrounding him. Suddenly his face assumed a subtle expression. He shrugged his shoulders with an air of perplexity and with such fine fellows to retreat and retreat. Well, goodbye, general, he added, and rode into the yard past Prince Andre and Denisov. Hurrah, 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 shouted those behind him. Since Prince Andre had left had last seen him, Kutuzov had grown still more corpulent, flaccid, and fat. But the bleached eyeball, the scar, and the familiar weariness of his expression were still the same. He was wearing the white horse's guard's cap and a military overcoat, with a whip hanging over his shoulder by a thin strap. He sat heavily and swayed limply on his brisk little horse. Woo-woo-woo, he whistled, just audibly as he rode into the yard. His face expressed the relief of relaxed strain felt by a man who means to rest after a ceremony. He drew his left foot out of the stirrup and, lurching with his whole body and puckering his face with the effort, <coughs> excuse me, raised it with difficulty onto the saddle, leaned on his knee, groaned and slipped down into the arms of the Cossacks and adjutants who stood ready to assist him. He pulled himself together, looked round, screwed up his eyes, glanced at Prince Andre and, evidently not recognising him, moved with his waddling gait to the porch. 
Woo-woo-woo, he whistled, and again glanced at Prince Andre. As often occurs with old men, it was only after some seconds that the impression produced by Prince Andre's face linked itself up with Kutuzov's remembrance of his personality. Ah, how do you do, my dear prince? How do you do, my dear boy? Come along, said he, glancing wearily around, and he stepped onto the porch which creaked under his weight. He unbuttoned his coat and sat down on a bench in the porch. And how's your father? I received news of his death yesterday, replied Prince Andre abruptly. Kutuzov looked at him with eyes wide open in dismay, and then took off his cap and crossed himself. May the kingdom of heaven be his. God's will be done to us all. He sighed deeply, his whole chest heaving, and was silent for a while. I loved him and respected him and sympathized with you with all my heart. He embraced Prince Andre, pressing him to his fat breast, and for some time did not let go. When he released him, Prince Andre saw that Kutuzov's flabby lips were trembling and that tears were in his eyes. He sighed and pressed on the bench with both hands to raise himself. Come, excuse me, <clears throat> come with me. We'll have a talk, said he. But at that moment, Denisov, no more intimidated by his superiors than by his enemy, came with jingling spurs up the steps of the porch, despite the angry whispers of the adjutants who tried to stop him. Kutuzov, his hands still pressed on the seat, glanced at him glumly. Denisov, having given his name, announced that he had to communicate to his Serene Highness a matter of great importance for their country's welfare. Kutuzov looked wearily at him, and, lifting his hands with a gesture of annoyance, folded them across his stomach, repeating the words, For our country's welfare, well, what is it? Speak. Denisov blushed like a girl. It was strange to see the colour rise in that shaggy, bibulous, time-worn face, and boldly began to expand his plan of cutting the enemy's lines of communication between Smolensk and Vyazma. Denisov came from those parts and knew the country well. His plan seemed decidedly a good one, especially from the strength of conviction with which he spoke. Kutuzov looked down at his own legs, occasionally glancing at the door of the adjoining hut, as if expecting something unpleasant to emerge from it. And from that hut, while Denisov was speaking, a general with a portfolio under his arm really did appear. What? said Kutuzov in the midst of Denisov's explanations. Are you ready so soon? Ready, your serene highness, replied the general. Kutuzov swayed his head as much as to say, how is one man to deal with it all? And again listened to Denisov. I give my word of honour as a Russian officer, said Denisov, that I can break Napoleon's line of communication. What relation are you to Intendant General Kirill Androvich Denisov, said Kutuzov, interrupting him. He is my uncle, your serene highness. Ah, we were friends, said Kutuzov cheerfully. All right, all right, friends, stay here at the staff and tomorrow we'll have a talk. With a nod to Denisov, he turned away and put on his hand for the papers Konovitsin had brought him. Would not your serene highness like to come inside, said the general on duty in a discontented voice. The plans must be examined and several papers have to be signed. An adjutant came out and announced that everything was in readiness with in. But Kutuzov evidently did not wish to enter that room till he was disengaged. He made no he made a grimace. No, tell them to bring a small table out here, my dear boy. I'll look at them here, said he. Don't go away, he added, turning to Prince Andre, who remained in the porch and listened to the general's report. While this was being given, Prince Andre heard the whisper of a woman's voice and the rustle of a silk dress behind the door. Several times, on glancing that way, he noticed behind that door a plump, rosy, handsome woman in a pink dress with a lilac silk kerchief on her head, holding a dish and evidently waiting the entrance of the commander-in-chief. Kutuzov's adjutant whispered to Prince Andre that this was the wife of the priest whose home it was, and that 
she intended to offer his serene highness bread and salt her husband as was welcomed has welcomed his serene highness with the cross of the church and she intends to welcome him in the house she's very pretty added the adjutant with a smile at those words kutuzov looked around he was listening to the general's report which consisted chiefly of a criticism of the position of the sarivo zaymischi as he had listened to Denisov, and seven years previously had listened to the discussion at the Austerlitz Council of War. He evidently listened only because he had ears, which, though there was a piece of toe in one of them, could not help hearing, but it was evident that nothing the general could say would surprise or even interest him, and that he knew all that would be said beforehand, and heard it all only because he had to. As one has to listen to the chanting of a service or prayer. All that Denisov had said was clever and to the point. What the general was saying was even more clever and to the point. But it was evident that Kutuzov despised knowledge and cleverness, and knew of something else that would decide the matter, something independent of cleverness or knowledge. Prince Andrei watched the commander-in-chief's face attentively, and the only expression he could see there was one of boredom, curiosity as to the meaning of the feminine whispering behind the door, and a desire to observe propriety. It was evident that Kutuzov despised clever. Oh, sorry. It was evident that Kutuzov despised cleverness and learning, and even the patriotic feelings shown by Denisov. But despised them not because of his own intellect, feelings, or knowledge. He did not try to display any of these, but because of something else. He despised them because of his old age and experience of life. The only instruction Kutuzov gave of his own accord during that report referred to looting by the Russian troops. At the end of the report, the general put before him for signature a paper relating to the recovery of payment from army commanders for green oats mowed down by the soldiers when landowners lodged petitions for compensation. After hearing the matter, Kutuzov smacked his lips together and shook his head. Into the stove, into the fire with it. I tell you once and for all, my dear fellow, said he, into the fire with all such things. Let them cut the crops and burn wood to their heart's content. I don't order it or allow it, but on an exact compensation either. One can't get on without it. When wood's, when wood is chopped, the chips will fly. He looked at the paper again. Oh, this German precision, he muttered, shaking his head. Oh, all right, there we go. Kutuzov's heard it all before. Um, yeah, he knows what's up. He only has to half listen to make his calls. I respect that. All right, have your say about it on the subreddit. Thanks for listening and I'll see you tomorrow.